Welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name is Winnie Caesar, the global head of strategy here at Credit Sites. And today I have the pleasure of talking to Chaz Johnston, who leads our energy coverage efforts, focusing on IG and high yield midstream, as well as high yield ENP. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's get right into it. If you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic, credit market, or sector-specific data for 2023, what would you want to look at and why? That's a good question. I would say real internal inventory projections from upstream issuers. I think it's reasonable to assume that many of the quote-unquote decades-long inventory outlooks are inflated. And that having more detailed insight into real inventory lives at you know different risk commodity price assumptions would shed a lot of light into when M&A could occur and when there is risk to midstream volume outlooks. So a lot of upstream M&A deals are supported by getting larger blocks of contiguous acreage to improve drilling economics. But a lot of them are also done to add inventory life. So knowing when current inventory may be pressured would allow you to hone in on potential acquisition targets. And then on the midstream side, this would give you interesting insight into recontracting needs at the individual pipeline level, throughput trends at the basin level, and which gathering and processing systems would be at most risk for declining volumes from some of their largest customers. Wow, that is really interesting. You know, I was guessing that you were going to give me something like Chinese GDP or something very macro oriented, given how the global commodity complex all plays together. But I love that you had such a specific energy sector story there. I think that that is really helpful. And I think it also just highlights kind of the importance of a lot of these details in terms of getting portfolio positioning right in such a kind of volatile and confusing macro environment. All right, so let's move on to sector recommendations. And, you know, we at Credit Sites have been fairly constructive on energy for a while, though you are kind of taking down risk on the IG side of things. How are you thinking about your sector recs for 2023 and why are you telling investors to position that way? Sure. So as you said, we downgraded IG Energy to market perform in mid-December. 
with the upstream universe at, at market and midstream we kept at outperform. And this is because we saw leverage improvement that we'd seen across this space plateauing on both the IG and somewhat on the high yield side, given a lot of the balance sheet goals have been achieved at this point. And from here forward, incremental cash flow is largely being directed to equity holders in the form of dividends, share repurchases, and in some cases, special dividends. And then on the upstream side, you have declining commodity prices that are starting to pressure leverage metrics, but the metrics generally will remain very strong compared to historical levels. So from a fundamental view, energy remains in a good place, and we thought valuations were getting a little tight for midstream. And just to quantify this for everyone, IG Energy trades about 15 bips behind the overall index. And when I looked back to kind of what it was in other, you know, quote unquote, normal years, thinking about 2017, 2018, 19, and, and 2021, that spread differential was more like 30 to 40 bips and widened out to 60 to 80 bips in the downturn years. So think 2015, 2016, 2020. We kind of felt the macro environment, the stronger starting point for credit metrics or where we are now, and the capital allocation plans across the energy landscape reflected fair value at these new tighter spread levels. And so when you think about upstream, macro is, is always going to be a, a key driver. But given the balance sheet strength across the sector, we said issuer selection is going to be more important this year. And that's because you have more unique cost pressures impacting capital efficiency, you have well productivity concerns starting to pop up, and these are more weighted to the shale producers, meaning having some international or long cycle diversification provides more value from a credit perspective. Now on midstream, we maintained our outperform because it remains the widest energy subsector. And for midstream, you can pick up 25 to 30 bips of spread compared to IG energy. And if you think back to those normal years that I mentioned, midstream spread pickup has generally been in the 10 to 15 basis point range. So you actually get greater spread pickup these days for a sector that has minimal direct commodity price exposure because it's largely backed by long-term contracts with built-in inflation adjusters. So for midstream, the inflation story has not been a material impact, and, and in some cases, it's actually been a tailwind. And even at a lower commodity price deck, production of crude gas and NGLs is still expected to grow. So this supports the midstream throughput picture. In terms of positioning within the sector, we tend to have a preference for names on the, the wider end of the IG peer group, given these constructive trends and a continued focus for many of these names on moving from low triple B to mid triple B. And then on, on the high yield front, we kept our record outperform because unlike the IG group, many of these issuers continue to focus on balance sheet, a, a key capital allocation priority. And, and we think that as we continue to progress through the year, we'll see some positive technical tailwinds from the rising stars, which I think will still happen and lack of new issue. That's super helpful. I was actually going to follow up with that rising star question because I think it's a pretty key consideration in the outperform recommendation and also just something that comes up a good bit. What's kind of the timeline for further energy rising stars this year? And then I guess what's left 
once we get those upgrades, what's left in the world of high, high yield energy? Sure. So on the first part, it wouldn't surprise me to see some of the names move in the next couple of months, the largest and most important from an index perspective being Oxy. So the agencies have been waiting for Oxy to get gross debt below 20 billion. They are just below that number with fourth quarter earnings. So I would expect we see something rather soon on that. Um, we still have five of the top 10 largest high yield energy issuers tagged as rising stars over the next 12 to 18 months. The one that I think has been impacted or at least delayed by the recent commodity price volatility is Southwestern. So before the gas price sell-off, we had them probably a year-end 23 rising star target. And, and now we think that's more kind of a mid-2024 story. That's super helpful. So, you know, we were talking actually before we started recording this conversation about earnings season. How has that gone? What would you need to see from kind of the energy sector more broadly to change your recommendations around a bit? And did you see any glimpses of those things during Q4 earnings season? Not yet. So I would say first, we did recently make some changes to our natural gas price deck, but not at the sector level. As we enter the year, we were slightly bearish on natural gas. We were about 10% below the strip price uh, because we saw in what would be a normal winter a slight oversupply. And it turns out we had one of the warmest winters on record, which led to a significant oversupply of gas and prices have dropped around 60% which is very impactful for certain issuers, as I just mentioned, Southwestern is one of them. Uh, but generally for a sector rec to change, crude prices are going to be much more important because a lot more of upstream is levered to crude as their key commodity. And even for midstream producers who may handle natural gas RNGLs, a lot of those come from crude focused basins. So the energy sector as a whole is much more levered to crude dynamics and we aren't expecting a material change in the crude price outlook because we feel OPEC is just back in the driver's seat there and OPEC is going to continue supporting the markets and they have the ability to because shale producers are in maintenance mode. That's super helpful. So in terms of kind of the, the crude outlook, we've been pretty range bound this year. Do you just kind of expect that range to generally hold? I, I do. It, it's the range that we've seen OPEC kind of react to when it gets lower. Yeah. You would see a little bit of support domestically from refilling the, the stockpiles if crude starts testing the $70 range. But generally, OPEC has been supporting the market around, around 80, and that's what we expect to see going forward. We haven't seen any indication from shale producers that they're going to start using balance sheet capacity to to increase production again. That is really interesting, especially given the whiplash that I think a lot of investors have had in the energy sector for the past eight years at this point. So how do you think clients are thinking about energy? How do you think that portfolios are positioned? Are people comfortable with this 
new kind of constructive outlook for the sector or are people waiting for that shoe to drop? I think a bit of both, but I would say the majority of my client conversations would indicate long to market perform. Most clients are very comfortable with the strong fundamental picture. I would say last year, there was a huge rush to get long as things were rallying late spring, summer, it largely from clients that had been avoiding energy. I can't tell you how many client calls I did that were effectively missing the rally, get me up to speed quickly type of calls I did in that time frame. But it seems we're moving more towards a market position or you know, a, a, with comfort from buy and hold investors as more and more of these issuers hit their balance sheet goals. And I would add, I, I think the volatility that we've seen over the past three months in gas prices does remind some investors of cyclicality in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. With all of the macroeconomic headwinds and tailwinds and China reopening and Europe and Russia, Ukraine still, it's hard to get fully confident that we're not going to get caught off sides in energy again. But I always remind investors that it's very rare that the sector that was kind of ground zero for the last crisis still is under pressure in the next kind of volatility and sell-off, mostly because a lot of times management teams have to really focus on balance sheet management, liability management, really kind of cleaning up their cap structure so that they can manage through these headwinds. So, you know, I, as someone who started strategy in 2014, just in time for energy to become an absolute thorn in my side, I definitely kind of agree with your sentiment where there, there's still a lot of reasons to be cautiously optimistic about things. So with that, let's talk a little bit about the primary market and new issue activity. How are you thinking about primary in both IG and high yield? What is going to drive new deals? Do we have a big refinancing wave coming from some of these rising star candidates as they actually make it back to investment grade? Is there M&A pent up in the pipeline? You kind of alluded to potential M&A conditions in your first question around economic data. How are you thinking about primary market activity this year? Sure. So on the IG side, I'll start there. We're expecting issuance to return to more normal levels after a down year in 2022. So issuance last year was just 40 billion. And if you think about the five-year range prior to that, it was kind of in the 80 to 160 billion range. So we expect some normalization here, probably towards the low end of that range, maybe a little bit below based off what we've seen year to date. So year to date is down 30% versus first quarter of last year. But considering we've got a month to go in the quarter, we're effectively on track and we just wrapped up energy earnings this week. So we could see more issuers coming to market now that that's behind us. So far year to date, midstream has been a key driver with more than half of the total IG energy issuance to date. And in terms of who may be coming to market, Kinder is already issued, but they, I think they'll be coming back to market later this year. Energy transfer has 2 billion maturing this year that they're likely to refi after largely repaying debt that matured the past couple of years. And most of, of the big 
Canadian issuers, so Enbridge and TC Energy, have material debt market needs this year. Enbridge up to $6 billion of, of new issue, and TC has $3 billion of maturities and another $3 billion or so of borrowings to term out. But they are a bit of a question mark because they also have a high single-digit billion asset sale program that they've just kicked off. So issuance timing will be very dependent on when they receive proceeds as part of that. And on the flip side, there were a couple names that we had expected to refi debt. EOG and One Oak each had about a billion maturing this year. And with earnings, they came out and said that they would probably just repay that instead of tapping the markets. Now on the high yield side, we're expecting issuance to be above the very, very low numbers we saw last year, but still subdued relative to, to history. So 22 issuance was just $11 billion for high yield energy. And that compares to a range of 30 to 80 billion over the prior five years. Now, first quarter has been off to a pretty hot start at eight and a half billion. But this is largely driven by two international issuers in Pemex and Equipetrol. They did $2 billion, or sorry, $4 billion between them. The reason we think it's going to remain a kind of a lower issuance here is there's just very few maturities for high-yield energy, about $5 billion in total this year. And so if you look at that light maturity schedule, you have a lingering commitment to debt reduction for a lot of larger issuers. A lot of liability management was done in... 2021 and early 2022, which lessens the need for that this year. And then many of the larger high-yield energy issuers, as we spoke about earlier, are hoping to achieve upgrades to IG. And that means any new potential issuance from those names is probably going to be held off until they are an IG issuer. One would, one would think, one would hope for sure, <laughs> yeah. even the, the delta in borrowing costs. I thought it was interesting that a couple of issuers have come out and said that they're actually just going to repay near-term maturities in the IG market. This is actually something that we've given a lot to of thought to on the strategy side of things in terms of management teams kind of rethinking just kind of how they're using debt capital in general. You know, are we just going to constantly refi things for the sake of refining things now that borrowing costs are so much higher? Or are management teams going to get a little bit more strategic in terms of, you know, actually tapping the market when they have a really compelling reason to do so? So that's a really interesting note from your sector and, and kind of confirms some of the things that we've been toying with as well. So this has been a pretty constructive conversation, I would say, when it comes to the energy sector. So let's talk about the risks here. What really keeps you up at night when you think about your sector and your recommendation? You know, it's exactly what I saw Kinder Morgan do at their January analyst day and what Chevron did at their analyst day just a couple of days ago. And that is using balance sheet capacity to fund buybacks or, or special dividends and, and giving up a lot of the strong improvement in credit metrics that we've seen over the past two years. Uh, so Kinder said multiple times on the call and even had a slide highlighting their $3.6 billion of balance sheet capacity to accelerate buyback targets up to their leverage target, which in Kinder's case is, is above most of their peers. And then similarly, Chevron said that they expect buybacks to be a tool to relever back to, 20 to their 20 to 
debt to cap target, which is just 3% right now. And the energy sector has been such a strong example of, of capital discipline over the past two years. And, and I think this surprised a lot of investors given their history. So I do worry about when that could turn around and, and if other management teams will follow this and look to the balance sheet as a source for shareholder returns. So just to quantify debt repayment focus from energy, IG Energy Index declined by $50 billion last year, and that was despite $20 billion of rising star debt. So you had around $70 billion from initial IG issuers of debt reduction last year. And over the past two years, the high energy index has shrunk by 25%. And as we mentioned earlier, with five of the 10 largest issuers potentially moving to IG, that's set for a further decline. I think the good news here is that we still have examples of, of capital discipline getting stronger. So Enterprise, which is one of the bellwether med midstream names, and already had the tightest spreads of all of our midstream coverage, with their fourth quarter earnings, they took their leverage target down another half a turn. So 275 to 325. And what they said was the energy industry is in a new era and leverage below historical norms is warranted now. At the same time, we continue to see some of the low triple B issuers like energy transfer and planes talking about having a firm target for mid triple B ratings, not just credit metrics, but they're actually saying we want to get those mid triple B ratings now. Um, and then you have the high-yield issuers talking about moving to IG. So there is still a focus on ratings improvement, and that would be what keeps me up at night if, if we saw more names follow that kind of, we're going to use our balance sheet capacity to relever again. I think that that keeps me up at night as well when it comes <laughs> to a lot of the IG market and our recommendations to be constructive on corporate credit as a whole over kind of the long term, because there is this nice mix of fundamentals should be, you know, good enough for credit investors, maybe not good enough for equity investors. And then that technical consideration of how are we allocating cash flows? It is a little bit unnerving to hear some of the energy teams talking about returning capital to shareholders, especially when energy is like the one place that's fared well in the equity markets over the past 12 months. So really, really helpful color on that side of things. Let's talk a little bit about top picks, top pans, carry trades. What are the issuers that you are trying to highlight to your clients right now? Sure. So let's start with top pick here. That would be Rockies Express. It has 2028s yielding 8.5% for an OPCO gas pipeline. And Rockies Express, is, its core westbound capacity, which is west out of Appalachia, is fully contracted through 2030 or later. Now, the Appalachia Basin is short pipeline takeaway, and it's nearly impossible to build anything there these days. And what that means is basis differentials, which is the discount you receive if you're selling your gas in the basin is well in excess of the tariffs that Rockies charges. And so that means that recontracting when these contracts do come up for expiration in 2030 is likely a very low risk because it's a valuable asset for those customers to hold. 
So Rockies generates very stable cash flows from these long-term take-or-pay agreements. And that means there's no commodity price risk and no volume risk either until the contracts mature. Uh, the, the pipeline itself has leverage in the high threes, which is actually lower than its previous leverage metrics when it used to be an IG issuer. And we don't think it's going to be a, a near-term rising star because we think the agencies are waiting on a, a key contract out of the, the Rockies, which is how the pipeline got its name. So it has an eastbound contract with Oventive that rolls off next year. Our view is that these volumes are going to be recontracted, though at lower rates. But it, say we're completely wrong and you take Oventive out of the picture completely, Rockies is still generating positive free cash flow. So that's the downside scenario. The upside is that 75% owner, Tallgrass, is progressing a carbon capture project. This is backed by Archer Daniels. If it's successful, Tallgrass has already said in its regulatory filings that they will repurpose a parallel pipeline that they own to CO2 service, and they would move all of that parallel pipeline's contracts onto Rockies under a 15-year agreement, fully offsetting any potential recontracting risk for the eastbound contracts. So we view this as a, a stable credit through its 2030 contract expiration out of Appalachia with a nice yield, and we think it's an off-the-radar rising star for 2024. On the carry trade, I would point to your partners, CQP. Um, it is the widest IG midstream name that we cover. And I think that as we go into next year, there's also some tightening potential there. CQP owns Saving Pass, the largest LNG export terminal in the country, and 90% of volumes are backed by take-or-pay agreements with about 16 years remaining. Additionally, the CQP's structural position is improving as project-level debt at Sabine Pass declines. So they just went through a 2023 maturity where they repaid a billion of the billion five maturity. They refinanced the remaining 500 million with fully amortizing notes. And we expect a, a similar thing to happen when, when the next tranche of 2 billion matures next year. Uh, and if you think about LNG exports as an asset type, we think they're one of the most insulated from the energy transition. And this is a management team that's executed on its balance sheet goals every step of the way. They removed the, the project level bonds from low triple B to IG. The holds code debt followed very recently to IG. They've set a goal for mid triple B ratings across the structure. So that's another one that we like. And our pan here is Magellan Midstream. This is primarily a refined product pipeline operator with the tightest or second tightest spreads across IG Midstream. So Magellan has long been one of the most conservative midstream management teams, but it's three and a half times leverage no longer stands out with eight of the 13 IG names below four times this year. It, it's two when everyone had a four and a half times leverage target, but you know, being in the mid threes, it's just no longer enough to stand out from credit metrics. And this year, Magellan's in, in great shape actually, because their core refined product pipes have a annual PPI plus finished goods tariff adjuster, which means they're going to see a nice increase in tariffs this year. But the real concern is, is what happens in the medium term because refined products account for 70% of the EBITDA, meaning Magellan's core asset is at the forefront of the energy transition impacts that we're going to see. So 
it is not a near-term issue, but investors aren't going to wait until the volumes actually start to, to disappear. And when the management team spends the opening hour of its analyst day talking about the pace of EV adoption, you know it's that's the thing keeping this management team up at night. And we think that as that continues to work its way through the market, that's going to impact spreads going forward. That is super helpful. I was actually going to ask you during that keep you up at night question about energy transition, but it seems like there are definitely pockets where there are potential pressures that that could materialize sooner rather than later. And then other parts of the energy sector that still seems to be fairly well positioned to manage through some of the changes that are coming to the sector and uh, really the way that the global energy market functions more broadly. Yeah, so I think the refined product pipes are certainly going to be on the early end of impacts. And and you have some cost of service and, and tariff inflation adjusters that will benefit them near term. But long term, it's hard to argue that there's not going to be an impact there. Whereas you have gas pipes that that can be repurposed and you can blend renewable natural gas in, you can blend hydrogen in. And so there are other pockets of opportunity within midstream energy to participate in the energy transition. That's great. Really helpful information. So let's wrap this up with your words of wisdom. If you had any advice that you could give to management teams for 2023, what would you tell them? My advice would be pretty simple. It is just to maintain the strong capital discipline that both the equity and credit markets have been rewarding for the past two years. And so if you think about the change here, you went from the era when you said you just got into strategy. So the you know, four or five years prior to 2016, where upstream and midstream companies were on were in full growth mode, fully debt funding, or at least for fully externally funding, because MLPs were all serial equity issuers back then. Um, and so prior to 2015, 2016 downturn. And then after that downturn, they went to a funding model where there was partially funded with debt and partially funded with cash flow. And then they all got hit with the, the COVID downturn. And as coming out of that, the entire sector has moved to a, we're fully internally funding all of our CapEx and equity payouts with cash flow. And this brought a lot of investors that had been avoiding energy back to the sector. So my advice is to don't stray from the, the strong capital discipline that, that's been, been benefiting both sides of the equation just to chase some short-term incentives or goals. That is wildly helpful. I really appreciate this conversation, Chess. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you all to who are listening to this podcast. If you have any follow-up questions, please feel free to reach out to me or Chaz using the Ask an Analyst function on the Credit Science website or by shooting us an email And good luck to everyone navigating the energy sector in 2023. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.